here. And with that, I want to say Merry Christmas, everybody. We're going to try that again because you didn't know it was coming. But now you know. Merry Christmas, everybody. There you go. All right. Very good. I want to welcome everybody here on site. So those of you who are sitting here in the room, online, those of you who have joined us online, thank you all for joining us here at Hammock Street Church. Uh, As they like to say on Southwest Airlines, we know you have a lot of choices when you Christmas, and so we thank you for choosing to come here with us tonight. We like to consider ourselves a very laid-back community. I hope you got that from being here for just a few minutes so far. We love Jesus. We love each other. We love the Bible, and uh, we like to say that, uh, and I love the alliteration here, we don't allow fakes, phonies, or Pharisees. We're glad you're here with us. We're glad that you're celebrating the Messiah's birth tonight. I'm Russell Silverglade. I'm the lead pastor. Before we dig in, I did want to let everybody know of something new that we're going to be doing in 2022. So instead of just meeting one time a year on Christmas Eve, we have decided to meet every week on Sunday, right? So I'd like to invite you, so that, there you go, so that one person clapped, that's good. I'd like to invite you all back, obviously not this coming Sunday because you heard the announcement, but the following Sunday and every Sunday throughout the year, our services start at a very doable and eminently reasonable 10 o'clock in the morning. Our music is entertaining and enjoyable and awesome and helps us worship. Our atmosphere is Florida casual. We faithfully teach God's word in a way that we hope is both understandable and practical. And we've kind of structured things so we can get to know each other. And so we'd like to invite you to join us again and again every Sunday here at Hammock Street Church. Now, during the weeks leading up to Christmas, during the period of Advent, we've been talking about the radical gift of the Messiah. And we started off in week one with the radical rescue. In week one, we looked at the book of Genesis, first book of the Old Testament. We looked at chapters first, one, two, and three, Genesis one, two, and three. And we talked about our omnipotent and all-powerful God and how he used extraordinary means to send a savior, to send a Messiah, to rescue his people from the tragedy of sin and death. Then in the following week, week two, we looked at the radical promise. And we talked about how God promised that our Messiah, our Savior, would be a prophet and a priest, as well as a king. And he would come from the family of Judah, and that he would be born in Bethlehem. Then in week three, we talked about the radical plan. We saw how God prepared his people for the Savior by teaching them that as human beings, we're unable to please God with our own efforts. And that our sinful nature leads us to deserve not life, but eternal death, eternal separation from God and all that is good from Him. And then we learn that according to the Scripture, only blood can pay for sin. And that it would be the blood of this Messiah that would pay for the sin of all of God's people one time forever. Then this past Sunday... Week four, 
we looked at the radical announcement. And we saw how God announced, told Zechariah and Mary that the Messiah was about to enter time and space. Now, if you missed any of these messages, I invite you to go take a look, hammockstreetchurch.com or YouTube forward slash hammockstreetchurch. You can check out all our messages online. They're, they're always going to be up there. So if you missed any of the messages, you can go check those out as well. Well, tonight, Christmas Eve 2021, we are going to celebrate the radical arrival. All right, what do I mean when I say the radical arrival? Well, I mean that the Messiah's arrival wasn't an ordinary thing. It was a radical thing because it was unlike the arrival of any other monarch. Also, it was for a reason different from any other monarch. And number three, it had a lasting impact. Now, what do I mean by all of that? Well, let's start off with our first point. The Messiah's radical arrival was unlike the arrival of any other monarch. I want to tell you a story. A few years ago, our family traveled to Canada to visit my wife Beth's dad, who lives in Ottawa. And as it turns out, just days after, or we got to Ottawa just days after another visitor had been there, but that visitor was slightly more famous than we. When we arrived, Ottawa was still abuzz over the visit of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England. Now, some of you may not be aware of this, and I, I certainly wasn't aware of this before I got involved with this Canadian family, but Ottawa is the capital of Canada. Do you know that? They find it very weird that we don't know that, but we don't know that. It's a small country. But Canada is a member of what's called the Commonwealth of Nations, which is just really referred to as the Commonwealth, and used to be known as the British Commonwealth. Now, the Commonwealth is an organization of 54 independent member states or member countries, 52 of which were a part of the British Empire at one point. Believe it or not, Queen Elizabeth is still the nominal head, the nominal leader. She still reigns as the official head of the Commonwealth. Now, when the Queen arrives in a town, she knows how to arrive. Okay, bands and soldiers and marching and saluting and all that sort of stuff. And, and while you guys probably didn't even realize that the Queen ever visited Canada, you probably don't care about all of that. When I was up there, it was a big thing. So Beth's dad and I talked a lot about the Queen. And we talked a lot about how much a ceremonial Queen can cost a country. It's estimated that the 54 members of the Commonwealth have to spend millions of dollars every year. Each one of the 54 countries has to spend millions of dollars every year to support their connection to the Queen of England. It's a pretty good gig if you can get the job. Now, on top of that, when the Queen visits somewhere, especially in Canada, the one I was looking at, it costs the Canadian taxpayers more than $1 million a day to have her there. And that doesn't include the cost of added police or cost to local business people because of street closures or traffic restrictions or costs incurred by, by the National Defense, the Army, by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is basically their federal cops, or the Public Works Department, or the Government Services, or their Health Department. I mean, it costs everybody in Canada a whole lot of money to have the monarch come and visit Canada. Um, Tom Frieda, who is the, uh, the director of the Citizens for a Canadian Republic, said it this way, to put it in perspective, the estimate is easily, check this out, half of the entire annual budget 
for operating the office of the governor general. So half of the government's budget for the officer general goes to supporting the queen's visit. Now, suffice it to say, when a monarch arrives in a country like that, it is a big event. Well, tonight, I want to talk about the arrival of another monarch, the king of the Jews. And to get there, we're going to be reading from the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke. You guys remember Luke, right? Some of you should. Thank you for the yes, greatly appreciated. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. And he was the Apostle Paul's traveling companion, probably his personal physician, and also his benefactor. In other words, he paid for Paul to be able to do his ministry work. Now, Luke wrote some of the books of the Bible, two of them actually, but he wrote them all as one book. So the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of the Acts of the Apostles, or the book of Acts as we know it, was written as one book, and then of course as people published the Bible, they split it up into two, the Gospel of Luke and the, and the book of Acts. Now, scholars regard Luke's account of the birth of Christ as noteworthy for its historical accuracy and for its attention to detail, which makes perfect sense. Luke was a physician, so he was scientifically minded. He was, you know, he was, a, he was a doctor, and they have to know specific things. And so he paid attention to the detail of all the things that he was told about the arrival of the Messiah. And tonight, churches all over the world are reading from Luke chapter 2. So let's pray, and then we'll do likewise. Ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this Christmas Eve 2021. Thank you for gathering us together as a community of your people. Thank you for an opportunity that you've given us to open our hearts and minds to your word. God, as we continue on this evening, we ask that you would use your word to change us from the inside out, to draw us closer to you, and to set us up in this community as your people, as your ambassadors. So God, we thank you for this time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to Luke chapter 2. You can open up an app if you like. You can watch the screen. Totally up to you. And we're going to start off in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. All right, so in these first few verses of Luke 2, Luke wanted us to see something. He wanted us to see that the story of Jesus is an actual historical event. And in these first three verses, we're actually introduced to two verifiable historical figures. Now, the first person we're introduced to is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. He's referred to as Octavian, and he reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. This is going to be on the quiz. Now, it's also here that we're introduced to Quirinius. Quirinius is a military leader and the Roman consul to Central Asia Minor. Now, the census referred to in this passage probably took place under Quirinius's military authority. And the census was taken for a very familiar reason. The census was taken so that Rome can implement a new tax on Judea. Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, well, that's still the situation. Politicians love to implement new taxes. So this is a new tax. Now, this tax was on cattle, on land, on produce, 
as well as on every person. This was an all-encompassing tax. So according to the rules of the census, people were required to return to their ancestral homes in order to register for the census so they could be counted and they would know how much taxes could be applied. Now, as you could probably guess, people haven't changed that much in 2,000 years when it comes to being taxed. People don't like taxes, and they didn't like the taxes. In fact, the taxes that the Romans put on the people that they occupied was, was so intense and so oppressive that indignation reigned throughout Judea. Eventually, over the course of history, there would be riots in a few cities in the Roman Empire. But you know something? Rome always collected its money. Now, interestingly, as an aside, and this is just an aside, it was one of those riots that took place in 70 AD, so roughly 35 years after the resurrection. One of those riots led the Romans to destroy the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now, we continue on with our story in Luke 2, verse 4. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, this was not your typical royal journey. These were not first-class accommodations, as you saw with the Queen of England. It was, it was nothing less than an arduous slog through the desert. Nazareth to Bethlehem was about a 90-mile trip, assuming, by the way, that they bypassed Samaria. Let me just show you this map. It's kind of interesting. If you look at this map behind me, this is a map of Israel. If you look at the top of the map, you'll see Nazareth up there in the Galilee region. If you look at the bottom of the map, you'll see Jerusalem almost at the very bottom and then Bethlehem just to the south of it. And you'll see that really weird green line that doesn't go straight down. It goes and takes a turn and then takes another turn. Interestingly, the Jews, when they traveled from the north down to the south, by the way, question... If you're traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem, why are you going up to Jerusalem? The answer is because Jerusalem sits on a hill. So that's the way you talked about it. Is when you went to Jerusalem, you climbed the hills. So you're going up. So it's really, we would say it's going down because it's going south, but it's really going up. Anyway, when they traveled from north to south in Israel, they actually would avoid, they'd take a day and add it to their journey to avoid Samaria because the Jews believed that the Samaritans were heretics, they were unclean, they didn't like to associate with them, and so they would literally walk all the way around Samaria so they didn't have to walk through. Interestingly, also, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 4, when we read Jesus goes to Sychar, which is in Samaria, and he talks to the woman at the well, that was a huge deal because the woman at the well was a Samaritan, and Jesus was a Jew and a rabbi and a man, and men didn't talk to women in that time, that they weren't related to, and Jews never talked to Samaritans. So it was like a big double whammy that Jesus showed love both to this Samaritan woman in Samaria. Anyway, this journey from north to south would have taken about four days. Remember, it's by foot or by donkey. Mary probably rode a good part of the way on a donkey, and the roads that she rode upon were dusty and rocky and treacherous and certainly unpaved. And oh, by the way, if that wasn't enough, Mary was a young teenage girl, and she was in the ninth month of her pregnancy. So this is really not your typical royal journey. Okay, we go on to verse 6. While they were there, okay, down in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, this sounds like it's kind of a surprise, right? It doesn't sound like, and Mary knew that she was going to give birth while she was on the trip. None of that said. It just sort of, wow, while she's there, it happened. So if the journey wasn't bad enough, I mean... 
it's really atypical for a royal. I mean, you think about it, a royal birth is going to be in comfort. But this didn't even rise to the level of comfort of what we would call a middle-class birth or even a lower-class birth. And Mary didn't know when the baby was coming, so she didn't plan ahead. She didn't have the opportunity to make sure her OBGYN was going to be on that night. You know, she didn't check that out. She didn't arrange for a scheduled C-section, you know, because she knew she'd be down there, right? I mean, this wasn't planned. But it would be very uncommon, suffice it to say, for a royal to give birth under these circumstances. So now, the next part of the story that we're going to look at is probably one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. Because I'll tell you that nearly everyone in the world, probably everyone certainly in the Western world, can recount the story for you. It goes something like this. Mary and Joseph didn't have a place to stay, so Jesus was born in a manger. You've heard this before, right? You hear this every Christmas. There was a bright star, and then there were these wise men, and they brought gifts, and there were camels, and sheep, and donkeys, and you've heard the whole story, right? Where's that story come from? Interestingly, the Bible doesn't give us that level of specificity about the story. In fact, here's all the Bible says about it. Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. When we look closely at this event, the conditions are actually far worse than we've ever been led to believe. Now, like a lot of things in life, history has sort of romanticized this situation, this event. And history has romanticized the birth of Jesus. And history has come along and swept up after all the animals. But the manger wasn't what we think. The manger wasn't a freestanding wooden barn in a beautiful starlit field, as is traditionally depicted. We all, if we saw this image, we'd recognize exactly what it's supposed to be, right? I mean, this is the manger, and it's in the middle of a field, and there's, this, there's the North Star, and there are the angels, and wow, it's so serene, and it's so peaceful. Well, that's not really what it looked like. Actually, the stable was a stone cave, which was much more common in a Middle Eastern town like Bethlehem than a wooden barn. Why? Well, they're in the desert. Wood is very hard to come by in the desert. The manger probably looked a lot more like this, minus the light bulb that's hanging there in the middle. Now, that would have made the manger a drafty, cold, and very uncomfortable place. And by the way, anyone ever spent any time around livestock? I'm a suburban guy. The closest I ever get is spending time around dogs and cats. But if you've ever spent time around livestock, you know that the manger was probably quite smelly, which made it a very stinky cave. And on top of that, the animals were making noises that animals make. They're making animal noises. And, and they had animal uh, issues, you know? Like, animals make a mess. And where there's animals and there's animal feed, there's also bugs and all sorts of other animal stuff. It's not a stretch to say that the cave probably had really poor hygiene. The cave probably had no neonatal intensive care unit, just in case something happened. This was not the typical royal arrival. And what's interesting is this. We're always talking about, oh, is the Bible believable? Is the Bible real? If you were going to write a story about a Savior, would you write it this way? You wouldn't script it this way. You would never make up this kind of royal arrival. You try to make it sound regal and wonderful. This arrival was radical. And that's the point. And there's a message here. Because though Jesus was by very nature God, 
he didn't behave in a way that one would expect God to behave. He didn't pull rank. He didn't flaunt his rights as a king. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2, here's what he said. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So, so Jesus didn't just take a low place. He took the lowest place because Jesus would be a different kind of king. Jesus would be a different kind of leader. Jesus would be a servant leader. It's interesting in the New Testament, Jesus' disciples would one day argue about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus stopped their argument cold and he said to them, even the son of man, that's a phrase Jesus used to talk about himself, even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This royal arrival was different. Why? Because this royal arrival was for a reason that was different than any other monarch. So why do monarchs travel? Why does the king go to another country? Well, they go for one reason. A king travels to another country in order to benefit their own country. A monarch's purposes are almost always self-serving, not others-serving. When the Queen of England visited Canada, right before we got there, it was to reinforce the loyalty of the Canadian people to the Queen's rule. When the Queen visited Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, she did so to promote England's interest. When the Queen came to New York to address the United Nations, it was for the benefit of England. That's what monarchs do. But our next verses show us the monarch who came for a different purpose and chose an unlikely audience to tell about it. So this monarch didn't appear before the United Nations, didn't appear before the local royalty. This monarch appeared before the shepherds, Luke 2.8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock at night. All right, what's up with the shepherds? Well, Baruch, Jerusalem and Bethlehem that's a lot, of, a lot of shepherds there. And Bethlehem was a small village outside of Jerusalem. And shepherds were everywhere because the Jewish people used a lot of herded animals. They used sheep for eating, for wool, for their sheepskin, and also for sacrifices. They did the same with goats. They did the same with birds. They, that's what, you know, so shepherds were, were there because there, was a lot, there were a lot of animals to be shepherded. And even though shepherding is a necessary job, it wasn't an attractive job. It wasn't a, a high-level job. In fact, shepherding was one of the worst jobs in Scripture. The job of a shepherd was not really thought of as a stepping stone to a higher-paying corporate job. I mean, it's not an entry level. You become a shepherd, and then one day you'll be the CEO. It didn't work that way. Shepherding was one of those occupations that everybody needed but nobody wanted to do. Genesis 46 actually tells us that the Egyptians hated shepherds. I mean, it's pretty strong, but they hated shepherds. And the Hebrews, the Jews, who, who prized cleanliness and purity, they didn't like shepherds either because they were always dirty. The job of a shepherd was attended with much hardship and also danger. So, okay, it's not a prestigious job. It's a dirty, smelly job, and it's a dangerous job. This sounds great. I think we're all going to run out and become shepherds. The shepherd was exposed to extremes, heat and cold. Their, their food supply was unreliable. They encountered wild beasts out there, lions, panthers, bears, and here they are shepherding the food. And they were constantly at risk of being accosted by robbers and thieves. That's the shepherd job. And yet it was these shepherds who would receive the news 
of the newly born Messiah. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherd, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I, I say this a lot because I think it's worth mentioning. Whenever you see an angel in the Bible, people are scared to death of the angel. So we actually think of angels as being all fluffy and sparkly and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's not what the Bible teaches about angels. Angels are terrifying. All right, so the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So in other words, the angel appears to the shepherds and says to them, hey, shepherds, listen. Even though this is the most terrifying moment in your entire life, don't be afraid. Right? Easier said than done. But the angel says, I have something for you that you're really, really, really going to like. You're really going to want to hear this. You know the Messiah that you and your family have been looking for for literally generations? Well, he has finally arrived. And unlike the arrival of other monarchs who arrived for their own purposes, this Messiah, this king, this monarch had arrived with good news for all the people. And once we've admitted that we're all sinners, that we're totally incapable of living the perfect life that would be necessary to make ourselves acceptable to God, and then we believe that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life that we can't live, but that he died on a cross, was put into a tomb, paid the penalty that, are, that we sinners deserve, he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand. And once we've committed our lives to God through this Jesus then we can enjoy God's gift of eternal life and then we can avail ourselves of the very same good news. So do you know what this means for us? It means that Jesus isn't the reason for the season. I know you've seen the bumper sticker, so have I. Jesus is the reason for the season. Not true, not biblical. Jesus isn't the reason for the season. We are. Jesus came for us and Jesus' radical arrival changed the world. The fact that Jesus came for us changes everything. And now we get it. Now we understand. Christmas is all about us. It's always been all about us. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And why did Jesus do this? Well, he did it so that we can be all about him today, tomorrow, and every day. We can be all about Jesus. And on Christmas, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that we have received the radical gift of the Messiah. And it's now ours to give away in everything we are and in everything we do, in every encounter and every relationship and in every moment. We are the beneficiaries of the infinite love of the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe loves us so much that he sent his only son, and whoever believes in him will live forever. And guess what? We get to tell the entire world about it. So, as we wrap up tonight, I'd like to issue a challenge to everyone here tonight. Here's my challenge. In the next 12 months, during the year of 2022, I want to challenge everybody here to become a gift giver. I want to challenge you to give away the gift of the Messiah. 
Because sharing the good news about our great God is really the only way that we'll be able to make a permanent impact and bestow an eternal blessing upon a person's life. We hear a lot of promises from a lot of different areas and places in society. None of them compares. None of them matches up to the promise that we have when we share the love of Jesus with people God will change their lives and connect himself to them eternally. We're the only ones that have that to offer, and we can all offer it. And as you give to our community, here's what I want you to do. Tell me about it. Share your stories with me. When you share Jesus with somebody, let me know. Send me an email. There's my email, russell at hammockstreetchurch.com. I want to hear your stories. Let me know how it went, and here's what we're going to do. Throughout the year, we're going to celebrate the stories of how God's worked through you, how God's worked through the people at Hammock Street Church to bring a people to himself. Now listen, I've heard these stories before. It's the most encouraging thing you could possibly hear. When you tell somebody about Jesus and you watch them go from death to life, you watch their life change from, oh, they're sad and, oh, they can't get out of their own way and, oh, they're in trouble to, oh, wow. The love is amazing. It is, it'll blow your mind. It is so encouraging. And I want to share those stories with everyone here, how God is working through us. So what do you think? In 2022, let's pledge to each other to be the change that we want to see. Let's see our community change for Jesus. Because the thing that's so radical about God's arrival 2,000 years ago is that God is still here. And God won't leave us. And God won't forsake us. And God has given us a gift that is so radical that it keeps on getting better and better the more we give it away. We are the representatives of Jesus Christ here on earth. And if you let God do what he does through you, it won't be typical. It won't be predictable. It'll be amazing. It will be radical. And it will bring him glory. Amen.